and welcome to the brand new Insight Podcast. I'm Grania Fowler. I'm Louise Holden. And we are going to be talking to all sorts of people in Insight over the next few weeks. You'll find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts normally. We'd appreciate if you would rate, review and subscribe if you like what you hear. This week we are going to talk to John Breslin in NUI Galway. We're going to talk to Dr. Emer Dahani in UCD. And we're going to catch up with Insight's brand new CEO, Professor Noel O'Connor, with whom this podcast actually all started. But first, John Breslin is an Insight Principal Investigator. He is also a personal professor in electronic engineering in NUI Galway. He's director of the Tech Innovate and Ag Innovate programs down there. He's also founder of the cultural phenomenon that is Boards.ie. And most recently, he has been nominated for an Irish Book Award for his book, Old Ireland in Colour, which looks set to be a Christmas hit this year. We asked him how that project began. Uh, I suppose initially I had been doing some genealogical research last year on my family tree and my my uh, my mother is from Clare, my dad's from Donegal, so I was kind of researching both sides of the tree. And as you do that, you start gathering old photographs, I suppose, of family members. And I had tried to um, colorize a, a particular photo, photograph of my grandmother from Glenties in Donegal when she was uh, younger. And I just, you know, loaded up Photoshop and started tracing out different black and white parts and you know, faces and hair and, and uh, clothes and so on. And it was taking ages basically to do it. So just coincidentally, I, um, you know, my background is uh, semantic web in, 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 uh, in terms of research. And um, one of the semantic web guys I follow shared out a picture of a picture that had been colorized using a system called Deoldify. And Deoldify is an artificial intelligence based application for automatically colorizing images. And it uses deep learning to do so. So Basically, I uh, I said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll give that a go on on the picture I've been trying to do of my grandmother, and sure enough, in a couple of seconds, it has you know done a very good uh, colorization of this picture. So, but uh, after that, I suppose I said, you know, I'll try this on some more images, and I did a few kind of, of pictures around Galway and you know Irish pictures and so on, and uh, I found that uh, it worked really well. And I, I was just sharing them on my own social media accounts, and they were quite popular. And I said, you know what, I need to do a dedicated channel for this. And the Old Ireland Colour project was born. So that was about August, I think the end of August uh, 2019. And since then, it's, uh, I suppose, grown. I've maybe done probably in the region of about 1,000 images. And, uh, you know, the artificial intelligence gets you so far. And then you have to do a bit of human creativity on top of that to, to bring it a bit further. Can I ask you, um, obviously, you saw great value from that very first photograph. Did you get an emotional response to seeing a colour version of your, of your, of your grandmother? Yeah, because uh, again, you know, I suppose we all have these pictures of a family when they're younger, and you know, the black and white photographs can be amazing. But when you can see them in color, uh, it does it, it does bring them to life a lot more. So I, I think it resonates a lot more. And you know, a lot of the let's say the historical photographs that I've I would have colorized, they seem to resonate a lot more with people when they're they're in color. But I think the other part is that the color also highlights things you may not have noticed before because there are aspects in the photograph that are somewhat hidden. Maybe it's just because they're in kind of grayscale or black and white. You, your eye isn't drawn to them as much, but then suddenly when you colorize different features, um, they become you know, more, more prominent or more visible. So uh, I think it, it resonates, but also it highlights, um, highlights certain things in the photograph that weren't highlighted before. Can I ask, this might sound like a really stupid question, but how does um, Deal if I know whether something was, say, green or red? Yeah, it doesn't. So, uh, you know, if it's something like grass, obviously it knows it's green, you know, because what it's doing is, and I suppose the way it works is basically it's trained on 
a large image bank of, of photographs. So essentially what the creator of the old file, he's a guy uh, in, in the US called Jason Antic, he would have basically fed it millions of images in color and then the corresponding images in black and white, which, you know, maybe some noise or, 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 or stuff added. And then it, you know, basically matches the color version to the black and white version and says, yes, this texture should be this color. So it knows for, let's say, the common types of things like, you know, grass and the sea and the sky and so on, pretty much exactly what it should be. And of course, as you say, you don't know for sure exactly what color something else might be like, you know, clothes or, or hair color and so on. So it usually makes the best, best guess based on the similar types of textures and colors it's seen. And I suppose because people wear all different color clothes, it kind of averages out things sometimes. Like you see a lot of the automatic colorization stuff, the clothes are in blue or kind of purpley color, or, you know, uh, some variant of that. So you have to then try and figure out, well, you know, is that typical of what clothes color people would have worn? And do I need to go back and manually change that? And for things like uniforms or outfits or, um, you know, uh, once where there's a historical record, let's say some famous person who is abroad, like Oscar Wilde, there's lots of records of the clothes colors he wore, you would be able to go back and, you know, manually correct that. But then for other instances, you're just really making a best, a best guess in terms of typical clothes colors of the time. I was really struck by an image of Countess Markovic, the really famous one of her with the revolver. Yes. And funnily enough, in the black and white image, it never even occurred to me that this might be a photo shoot in a studio which is mm. what it looked like in the color yeah. version it was kind of extraordinary yeah to yeah see. yeah you, and you know th there's a lot of those kind of studio photographs like Markovic and uh, uh, you know the, the various people in the US I think because they would have had a lot of backdrops let's say where they would have been you know repeatedly uh, taking photo shoots for various celebrities and so on where the background is a particular kind of thing like a, a landscape scene or something and then of course when you colorize it the trees and the, the landscape and so on also get colorized you know which is probably what it actually looked like at, at the time because it wouldn't be in this kind of drab uh, gray background so um yeah that one of, of markovich with the revolver and again that was one which where i would have had to you know understand the, the, the kind of the hue of the irish citizen army uh uniform she was wearing which is a particular shade of bottle green and go back and and colorize that and tell me about the book itself. It's it's a great big doorstop thing, isn't it? How did you go about selecting the imagery for it? <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, as I said, I had um, I've done a good few images. You know, it's probably up towards the thousand now. But at the time when we started off doing the book, it was probably in the hundreds. And uh, you know, the the other thing I suppose about the colorization process is it's improving all the time. So I, I did a lot of these images last year and wouldn't have really known very well how to fine tune them or improve them. And also, then in parallel, the models have improved. So. The Deodify system itself has improved and there's been other AI applications to do things like um, sharpening and face enhancement and so on. So uh, for selection, we, you know, we actually only signed up a publisher at the, I'm trying to remember now, I think it was the end of April. And, uh, it, you know, so it was a pretty rapid turnaround in terms of getting the book on the shelves in, in early October. It's like, you know, five months. So we basically selected the photographs over that period and would, uh, we, we tried to structure them. So I worked, um, uh, with a historian in NUI Galway, Sarah Ann Buckley, and she was fantastic in terms of helping to obviously, you know, add the historical context and she uh, she's written the text for the book, but also in terms of the groupings um, to try and figure out kind of logically how these things fit together. So uh, I would, what I would say is that there's a combination, I suppose, between the kind of the, the famous uh, types and the, let's say, the everyday life. So, you know, everyone likes to see kind of the, the names that they know, like Parnell and Markovich and, and so on. But then you, that's also balanced, I suppose, with the everyday life of people either in city or in, in, in rural situations, which I think is a nice kind of contrast. 
So it'll be on coffee tables all over the country, I'd say, on Christmas Day, will it? I hope so. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So the, the the book, you know, it's it's uh, you know, I have a copy here. Obviously, you can't see it. It's three hundred pages in 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 total, and there's one hundred seventy three images. And I think the, you know, the, I suppose something else that kind of struck me was that the print layout is quite different from the screen layout. And I'm not sure is it more forgiving or what, but it seems to work quite well in terms of the colorized photographs. Like you would look at lots of them, I think, and you know, I know I'm biased, obviously, but I think you would think that they were in color originally to start off with. And really that's that's a measure of how well the I suppose the AI process works in terms of colorization and then obviously the you know the the, the manual intervention afterwards in terms of making you know various uh, things look a bit more realistic. So yeah, there's something about the print version that just seems to work quite well. Well, you're fortunate too in that you have the nice symmetry of all the centenaries happening at the moment, and many of the images that you, you've you've drawn from are from War of Independence period and so forth. So people are are yeah. attuned to to this era of history at the moment anyway, aren't they? Yeah, the timing is good. Um, like obviously, you know, there's there's various documentaries being made. There's one being made at the moment, um, or has been made about Terence Maxweeney, which is on uh, it's on uh, on on RTE at the moment. Uh, I think it's on around now, and um, it's uh, you know it's around the centenary of, of his death. And we actually have some pictures in the book of his wife um, uh, Muriel Maxweeney. You know, when she went to America after he died and was basically on on a tour to promote the Irish cause. Um, so there's a lot of stuff happening at the moment, and you know, I also did recently a series for RTE, which was called War of Independence in Color, and basically we were taking various images and colorizing those. So they would be ones of, um, you know, of the the auxiliaries or the black and tans or of various British soldiers, or um, um, you know, other um, Irish independence figures, and uh, you know, again, timing is good. So uh, it's 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 interesting, you know, just to see, I suppose, the ones and again thinking of that kind of time frame, a hundred years ago. It seems like a long time ago, and of course we have seen a lot of black and white pictures. But again, adding the color, I think, does 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 add a lot to them and makes people realize, you know, how much things have changed. I suppose in some ways as well, because you know the the, the idea of these armored cars or tanks rolling around the streets of Cork or Dublin is uh, quite alien, um, and I think the the colorization does bring that to life. Will you keep going with it, or is this is the book sort of going to draw a line under this particular? Yeah, it's a good Project. question, and, and I've, I've had a lot of requests for book two, even though I don't have any plans uh, right now. I think, I, I suppose the best thing to say is we'll wait and see how this book does, you know, early indications are it's going to do quite well. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if it is the, the kind of one of the Christmas presents of the year, that'll be great. Uh, but I suppose um, it does take a lot of time as well. So, you know, I was fortunate I was actually on sabbatical for six months uh, at the beginning of this year. And the timing, you know, obviously with, with lockdown and everything worked out quite well in terms of being able to do it and have some bandwidth. You know, when you are in sabbatical, you normally have plans to go visit other universities and spend some research time there. And of course, that all went out the window. So um, I did have a little bit of free time there. And uh, it was a COVID book as well, because the historian Sarah and I worked with, we never actually met. And even though we, we both work in NUI Galway, we never, I don't think we've actually met physically in person. So <laughs> it's funny to have completed the book with publishers and co-authors and designers and everything that you, you've never um, laid an eye on. And, you know... <laughs> Uh, it's, it's great to see the, the result, I suppose. And maybe, you know, maybe the, again, just the circumstances, you know, the timing being offline, we managed to get it done in a lot uh, shorter time. But it is a visual book, and I suppose I had a lot of pictures prepared in, in you know, pre-publication. So um, maybe it came together a little bit quicker because of that as well. Extraordinary stuff. The very best of luck with it, John. Thanks very much for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, Ronya. Thanks, Lou. Thank, Thank you. you. Good to talk to you. 
John Breslin's book, Old Ireland in Colour, has been nominated for an Irish Book Award. If you'd like to vote for it, you can find it at irishbookawards.irish. I'm going to move on now to Dr. Emer Dohany. Uh, Emer's, along with many other researchers across Ireland and across the world, has really stepped up when it comes to COVID research. And she's been working on an app which uses a mobile phone to monitor breathing in the cases of people with COVID. Let's hear more about it. Recently, Minister for Further and Higher Education, Research, Innovation and Science, Simon Harris, announced €5.5 million in funding for 41 new projects through the COVID-19 Rapid Response Research and Innovation Programme. Insights Professor Madeleine Lowry and Dr. Emer Dohany were awarded nearly €145,000 of that for their project, Breathe Into Your Phone, a new way to monitor COVID-19 patients at home. Dr. Emer Dohany, you're very welcome and uh, congratulations, first of all. Thanks very much. Yeah, we were delighted. Um, It sounds like a fascinating project. Can you tell me a bit about it? So the project has sort of two parts. And the first part and the main part is that we want to monitor the way people breathe using the microphone in their smartphone. The second part then is um, to try to use that data together with other clinical data to try to predict when a patient may need to be hospitalised or re-hospitalised using the data that we've derived from their breathing as well as other information that's currently available through um, a HSE app. And presumably you were building on on previous research. Is this coming out of another project using the same kind of technology or was this a fresh start when COVID hit? So it's it's a bit of both really. So my my background is in um, sleep and breathing monitoring and movement monitoring using mainly wearable sensors. So that would be like sensors that would stick on to the body or we would attach with tape or maybe like Fitbit watches that we wear on our wrists, those sort of wearable sensors. I had already a project going with um, Vincent's Hospital where we were trying to monitor respiration rate continuously using wearable sensors during sleep. So then when this all kicked off in March, April and the funding call came out, we were trying to think of a way that we could apply our research to help. So that was the most relevant work that I had done. But obviously it would be, we thought it would be easier and better to work with a sensor such as just the microphone and the smartphone to monitor the sound of people breathing since we wouldn't need to buy any devices and we could roll it out to a large amount of people quickly. So we're sort of applying the same background knowledge that with um, the other project, but it's a new type of sensor with similar type of skills needed from us biomedical engineers where we'd look at things like signal processing and then how we get clinically informative information out of different types of signals. So we're looking at audio signals, whereas previous projects we would have been looking at acceleration signals or other sorts of movement signals. So you're looking at recording the sound of people breathing. How will that be helpful then? How is that going to be applied to help COVID-19 patients? So the, the first thing that we want to get is respiration rate, which is how quickly people are breathing. And that would be the most used clinically. So from speaking to respiratory consultants, we know that they, that would be something they would monitor one on one and they would just watch how people breathe. And they would, that would be the, 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 the metric they would write down probably or enter in their system. And it's a very simple metric, really, like just monitoring how many times people breathe in one minute, how many inhales and exhales in a minute. Um, and really easy to monitor one-on-one, but very difficult to monitor remotely. So that's the first thing we want to do. Um, on top of that, we'd like to be able to 
look at more detailed ways of monitoring breathing, such as the the volume that that people are inhaling and exhaling and um, maybe variations in how they breathe over time. And that these these measures may help us to um, predict a decline in patients' health, but that that's yet to be seen. You're recruiting uh, for, for volunteers at the moment now. By the time this is broadcast, that process will hopefully be complete. What will be the next step then? Yeah, so ho- hopefully we will have. We, so we want to look at um, 100 healthy subjects. So we're, we're about halfway there at the moment. Um, and then the next part is we want to do the same in people who are COVID-19 positive. So we're going to be trying to recruit patients with COVID. Then we'll test our algorithm. We'll develop our algorithms using that data and test it across uh, across both cohorts. Then we're going to call a subset of the healthy subjects in for some lab tests in UCD as well, where we'll validate our algorithms against research grade equipment. So that'll, that'll help us get some more accuracy on the results. So that's, and, and in parallel to that, we will be working on the predictive modeling work where um, that's where, so we'll be collaborating with a company called Patient Empower for this side of the work. So Patient Empower are, they're an Irish company that make patient monitoring app. It's a system really rather than an app where the HSE are using it at the moment and they have been since March since all this kicked off to allow patients to monitor the, the way their um, their pulse oximetry so they have a their the pulse of the finger and the heart rate and p- patient's temperature as well as their self-reported breathlessness so we have all those measures over time for a large cohort of patients and we're hoping to analyze that data or a subset of it in the hospitals that we're working with to allow us to predict decline in, in patients' health um, and add in our respiration algorithms as well. So I assume one of the big challenges at the moment is, you know, if somebody has COVID, um, you hear about this, they they can become quite distressed. I'm sure there's a big psychological factor too, where you're, you know, people are at home, they're sick, and then there's that uh, moment where you're like, do, you know, do I need an ambulance? Should I be calling somebody to get myself to hospital and that kind of thing? Uh, that That's what this is going to help with, essentially, is it? That somebody might be able to breathe into their phone with all this data. The technology might be able to give them, you know, a yes or a no, you should probably make the call or no, you're OK to sit tight for a while. Exactly. Yeah, it'll either work like that or if it was to be integrated into the patient empower system, that would automatically happen. So at the moment, their, their system automatically has alerts in the hospital if certain measures go outside of the range that they should be in. If it was to be integrated into that system, that would happen. If it was a standalone app, it would be a, a way for people to monitor how well they are. And people with COVID seem to be very, um, like, as you can imagine, they're like they're worried about themselves and they want to make sure that they're well. So people are very, there's very good adherence to using this sort of technology so yeah, it would hopefully reduce anxiety levels and um, and just and help doctors to be able to monitor large amounts of people. So it's very they're overworked as it is. So to be monitoring hundreds of people who are at home and they can't physically see how well they are, um, as well as everyone in the hospital and their normal jobs is like it's it's unmanageable at the moment. I mean, uh, like, like many of the of the, uh, the the research projects that are underway across the world at the moment, under awful circumstances, some great leaps forward are being made. I assume this kind of technology will have an application beyond COVID. We hope so. Yeah, we would we would imagine that we could apply this to um, 
chronic diseases that affect respiration, so other like not just respiratory diseases, but neuromuscular diseases or yeah, and, and and other infectious diseases obviously as well, where remote monitoring becomes even more important. Fantastic. Well, congratulations again on the funding. It's uh, it's one of those projects where you're like, yeah, I'm okay with my taxpayers' money going towards it. So the very best of luck. Um, Dr. Eva Darhani, thank you very much. And finally for this episode, it's only fitting that we hear from Insight's new CEO, Professor Noel O'Connor. Probably many members of the organisation assumed you already were the CEO, but you were in fact the interim CEO and now you are the real CEO? Is that the right terminology? That, that's right, yes. It's been a long time, I guess, in um, in preparation. But um, as of uh, earlier this year, I moved from being the interim CEO, some would say the pretend CEO, to the real CEO. Do you get a crown, Noel, or a throne? Fortunately not. No, no, nothing <laughs> like that. <laughs> so we were talking to you back in November um, for when this podcast was a mere twinkle in FH Media's eye. Uh, but we were talking about the plans for Insight 2 and it was all very exciting and lots going on. Of course, we now know that um, in events unrelated to the launch of Insight, we are currently on lockdown. There's a pandemic happening. D- did that kind of take the wind out of your sails or how, has you, how have you found the, the current situation has impacted the plans for Insight 2? I mean, obviously, the, the current situation is very difficult for, for everyone worldwide. Um, and it's been very trying. Um, it's been very distressing. It's been uh, very upsetting for, for many people. And the, the cost of, of human life and on human society, obviously, is, is, is horrendous. I would say one bright spark in all of that in the last six months for me is how Insight, uh, and more generally, I guess, the scientific community in Ireland, has responded to the pandemic. Um, the pandemic really gave science a chance to shine, um, if you like, um, because ultimately it's science which is going to beat this pandemic. Um, and I'm very proud of the role that Insight uh, uh, at all levels has played in the national response to the pandemic. Um, just to give you a, a couple of examples and apologies to anyone I leave out because there are too many examples to list them all. Um, but we have um, some of our maths and stats people working as part of IMAG, the Epidemiological Modelling Ad, uh, Advisory Group, feeding directly into to NEFID. They've been involved since the very uh, inception of, of NEFID and continue to work uh, to, to, to this day on that, uh, feeding vital information to, to inform policy and how to deal with the pandemic. We've had people who've worked very closely with the HSE and the Department of Health on the development of the COVID Tracker app, which has been a huge success, uh, possibly one of the best um, COVID Tracker app successes worldwide. Um, We played a part in that by helping to advise on aspects of the app development, um, uh, everything from usability of the app um, to the ethics and trust underpinning the app and the deployment of the app obviously the data analytics aspects um, uh, and also the review of the software that was developed uh, to help cast yet another pair of eyes uh, over over the technology to ensure that it is best best practice, if you like. Other examples include our, our work on national surveys, where we try to understand the human impact and attitudes towards the pandemic and things like like, like lockdown, for example, or levels of, of, of lockdown. Um, and of course, our education and public engagement team have been outstanding in a whole variety of initiatives, such as contributing to the um, to the school classes on RTE, for example. Um, you know, uh, and then, of course, there's the stuff that you tend not to hear about because it's not necessarily 
necessarily um, in the media or in the public eye. But we've had people from the operations team going out on weekends with vans full of furniture to deliver furniture to PhD students and postdocs in their in their digs or in their, their shared accommodation or whatever it might be. So so if there's one positive I can take from the, the change in the world we've experienced, it's um, it's the uh, the response we've seen from insight at a very, very human level to help us better cope with this this pandemic. It's interesting to see how quickly everything has come together. It must be kind of gratifying for people to be able to respond to a real world situation and to be able to respond quickly and effectively in the way that they have. Absolutely. I, I suppose it's not that surprising because if you, if you think about it at a very basic level, why do people get involved in research? Because they want to make the world a better place, right? And they typically want to turn their talents and their expertise and their knowledge to important societal problems and challenges. And that's why, for example, in Insight, we have so much work targeting health, health and wellness, or we have so much work tar- targeting the environment or, or accessibility or in urban environments, whatever whatever it might be. People want to make the world a better place. So uh, I suppose the pandemic was a, a, a catalyzing factor in that, that allowed people to collectively focus on one big grand challenge of our time uh, and to do so very agilely and dynamically, quite honestly. Um, but that's because of the energy that they bring to what they want to do. Um, we, we, we've, we've spoken in another podcast uh, uh, to Suzanne Little and Paul Boutelar about their research challenge in multimodal data analytics. And they were talking about how the sort of geographical limitations that the, that the structure of insight has imposed on collaboration in the past. Now, suddenly that's everybody's problem now. And it's, it's, it's actually been helpful in a way because now people are working together and they're more ready to work together across geographies using technology than they would have been a year ago. Um, so in terms of collaboration and cross-pollination within the Insight Centre, the, the change has brought, you know, some advantage. Absolutely. I'll give you another very good example that we have our annual scientific plenary coming up um, shortly. Um, uh, and traditionally, we would have held that at one of our sites and we would have invited principal investigators, funded investigators, the business team, the EPE team to one location in Ireland for two days to, do, to discuss science. Now, that's obviously not possible at the moment, so we have to hold it as a virtual event. The upside of that is that we save a huge amount of money um, in terms of having to bring everyone to one location, put everybody up for the night, you know, feed and and water everybody for for 48 hours. Um, So suddenly with no budget restrictions on an event like that, we can open it up to the entire centre. So actually for our upcoming scientific plenary, everyone across the centre, irrespective of role or irrespective of, of what they're doing, are invited to join our scientific plenary. And that's fantastic. That, that, that's, that's a great development because it, it really helps build a sense of, of community beyond what we would normally be capable of doing in face-to-face settings. Do you think this time is going to shape Insight 2 into the future? Um, I think it is. I think it's going to change um, things. I think, it's, I think it's going to change things globally, quite honestly. I, I, I mean, if a, if a vaccine appears tomorrow, right, and it was widely available, I still don't think the world would go back to exactly the way it was pre-COVID. I think we've all learned some very important lessons about the need not to always travel to be together in person. Um, uh, that has huge benefits in terms of people's time, people's availability, and of course the impact on our, our environment. So I think we'll see a lot more, a lot more um, uh, virtual work, um, a remote collaboration. And I think what this 
period has proven is that that can be very, very effective. To your point about about Suzanne and and, and Paul and how they've been able to work very, very effectively. Um, so I think that it'll it'll shape insight in the same way that it's shaping the rest of society. Um, uh, I think. The timing is very fortuitous for us because I think the other thing that um, perhaps Suzanne and, and Paul didn't reflect upon, um, and it's great because it's probably already ingrained in their psyche, is we have a new research program now in Insight. We have a new research program for the next five years that the investigators and the research challenge leads have worked very hard on over the last six months, including during lockdown, right? And that is all designed around collaboration across sites, across disciplines. So each of our research challenges, like RC4, Multimodal Data Analytics, is co-led by two investigators, in that case it's Suzanne and Paul, who are from different aspects of that research challenge, who take different perspectives on it, but are also from different sites, okay? And that um, ensures that collaboration and by necessity now remote collaboration is ingrained in all the scientific discussions that we're having. That's one aspect of it. The other really exciting thing that happened, and all of these things have happened, by the way, since we last spoke and, and most of them since, since COVID broke, right, is what we're calling the platform research initiatives. These are clusters of investigators who come together because they have identified a research topic or a research area that they believe is really, really important and that they want to work collaboratively on. And they basically um, come irrespective of site, irrespective of research challenge. So it's another layer of integration and collaboration. Again, they come to work on important topics such as the potential for AI and machine learning and medical image processing. For that's that's one example that we actually have. We have six of these already being discussed and, and a number of them up and running already. Another one, for example, is in the area of cultural analytics, which is about you know using machine learning, natural language processing, linked data to better under and recommend our systems to better understand cultural archives, uh, historical archives, so that we can better learn from the past to inform, inform the future. And that could be things like historical attitudes of the population to things like pandemics, for example, and what can we learn from previous pandemics that, that can help us better deal with this the, the, this this type of scenario and, and similar incidents in the in the future. Uh, I'll say we have six of those at the moment, and all that's required is for a group of investigators to come together and say, "Hey, this is an interesting topic we'd like to collaborate on," and uh, and they get they get kicked off. So there's there's loads of really interesting things happening in Insight at the moment, notwithstanding COVID, notwithstanding that we're all working from our spare rooms, or in my case, the garage, that are really um, that are really exciting and that I hadn't foreseen when I last spoke to you guys and I was talking about Insight too. So that's been hugely gratifying, I have to say. That's it for the Insight podcast for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, John, Emer, and Noel. Uh, we hope you join us next Wednesday for the next episode, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was brought to you by fhmediaconsulting.com. If you would like to uh, comment on the show, if you have an idea for, for, for a program theme, or if you'd like to come on and talk to us, which would be wonderful, uh, you can contact us at info at fhmediaconsulting.com. See you next week. Bye. This has been a Snoring Dog production on behalf of the Insight SFI Research Centre for Data Analytics.